0: Hello, this is Toby Haddock's Who's Round, which I hope gets very good punch in approval ratings. Um, I have a gig in Lancaster this evening uh, on a Sunday away from home, so the bonus is uh, that I've managed to be put in touch with uh, a writer, I've interviewed many writers for this, of Doctor Who, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who.
1: Hi, I'm Philip Martin and I've written for Doctor Who. I've written, what, um, Vengeance on Varos, Mind Warp, Mission to Magnus, and I've also written some... uh, audio adventures for Big Finish, the latest of which is called Antidote to Oblivion. Well,
0: it's fair to say that in Sil, you created probably the iconic baddie of of, of the Colin Baker era, certainly. And that's not that's not a bad accolade for a show with no. 20 years prior history. Oh, no, of monsters, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, I think there's something about Sill, because I wrote Sill, first of all, and Nabil Shaban made it live, and he introduced that wonderful laugh of his. And he... Sort of lodged in my memory for a long time, and when it it, it occurred in a strange way, as they wanted to lease Sill, and I thought about it, and I said, "Well, I'm not really happy with that." You know, for another writer to write the write Sill, I'm not really happy about that. And then Big Finish came back and said, "Well, what about you writing the script?" And I said, "Well, I haven't really got an idea." And then I got the flu, and I was lying in bed, feeling sorry for myself, and I thought to myself. Why did time lords never get ill? And well, I thought they must have a fantastic immune system. And that was the start of the, the idea about um, all the all the things that, that, that go on, which is why well, it's called antidote to oblivion, is that uh, they try and find out what the secret is of the time lords' uh, immunity to disease.
0: So I guess it's that germ of something based in reality that reads the sci-fi idea and and with vengeance on Varos right back to the beginning of your Doctor Who you know TV violence uh is the is the sci-fi is the the real thrust that gives you the sci-fi element.
1: Yes it is. I mean I it, it occurred to me one day that that um, well my daughter who was then 7 um was watching Doctor Who and she got a little bit scared as 7-year-olds do and said well I watch it and I watched I don't know three or four weeks of it really, and then I woke up one morning and I thought to myself, "I wonder what the media is going to be like in three hundred years' time," and that started off the process that ultimately became vengeance on Varos. Although there were a lot of um, there were a lot of miles in between that idea and get it, basically because John Nathan Turner didn't trust me because at that time I'd written play for the days and. I had a a reputation of being, you know, quite a hard-hitting social writer, really. And he was very suspicious of this, and he thought that um, I wanted to make Doctor Who political. And he started doing everything he could to um, obstruct me in doing it, and I kept batting the ball back. And he even asked me to do a scene breakdown, which is an insult to an established writer. Um, But I thought I was so determined by this time that I did the scene breakdown... And he had nowhere to go. He had to say, well, yes or no. And he said, well, all right, but don't make it political. Which, (laughs) when you think of Vengeance on (laughs) Verus, didn't (laughs) quite work out. I didn't quite heed his warning. But, um, yeah, I mean, so it was a... Yes, it was a a great journey, but it started off in in the way things do, that ideas just come in from somewhere and you think, oh, that's interesting. And from then on, you know, it's the germ that becomes the... uh, the
0: finished article in the end. Well, I remember at the time, though, it was Philip Martins writing for Doctor Who. Goodness. And um, so what made you not throw your toys out of the pram? Because I'm sure you had other things you could have been doing. Yeah,
1: well, I could. And my agent at
0: the time was horrified that I, I he was
1: even thinking about it. I don't know. It just somehow it caught my competitive instinct, really. And also by that time, I developed the idea fairly well with Eric Saywood. And I became intrigued by the idea. And so I don't know, but I I think it was just basically just plain sort of stubbornness, really, that (laughs) I wouldn't let it go. And uh, it became a competition, and and I just uh, was determined to see it through. Uh, Paradoxically, some of the the items and um, projects that my agent was anxious for me to pursue came to nothing, but here we are, you know, all these years later, talking about a script that I did that she was very much against. So,
0: But it's the curious thing, because of the other paradoxes, you were caught up in uh, writing a, a, a satire about television violence and the effects of violence dumbing down the population or, or what we have now, the, the voting thing, showing your approval, etc. But in a season of Doctor Who that ended up being taken off the air for being, and I quote Michael Grade, violent and unimaginative. So where did the satire begin and the reality? Well, exactly, but also, I mean, I've always had a theory about that that thing that they were looking
1: to make quite heavy cuts at that time and I think they just ran their finger down the list and they came to the budget of Doctor Who and then took it out then took it out because it was an easy option and the ridiculous thing was is that the Doctor Who then was making its money back through worldwide sales you know the way it does now Mm -hmm and so in fact it was almost a free show for the bbc so yes they said this about the violence and, and the rest of it but the plain honest truth was that michael Gray just didn't like it he just didn't like it and you get that with 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 controllers and commissioners you know there are certain aspects that they don't like i mean for in radio for instance there was a controller who hated anything about the supernatural so you you had no point putting in anything to do with the supernatural because it would just be vetoed at the top And that's the problem with um, commissioning, a lot of it, you know, that that a commissioning agent has to be aware of their own shortcomings, and and in a way, and, you know, when I worked, we'll talk about gangsters later, when I worked with gangsters, with David Rose, I mean, it wasn't David Rose's sort of thing, but he was such a wide... um, widely experienced man that he knew what his blind spots were and he, he he agreed with his advisors that this was worth it and so it went forward i wish there were more people like that who were objective enough about their own shortcomings to to um
0: to try and balance them really yeah, it's not my cup of tea however there's a, however you know, i understand yeah.
1: you know that, that there is a market for this there is a millions of people enjoy this particular genre and uh, i I will take advice, and, and if somebody who doesn't know that particular area says, no, this is worth it, you know, they will go for it. But that, that means quite a, a broad-minded person to be able to do that.
0: and you, And self-aware person as well. And you mentioned Doctor Who's budget, which is famously quite low. One of the things writers have often bemoaned about Doctor Who is that obviously there's been a huge gap between their vision of alien worlds and the fact that it's being done in a three-camera way in a studio. But actually your script for Vengeance strikes me as being... Maybe the result of a very experienced writer who knows you're writing a studio-bound adventure, so you don't write anything that's too difficult to pull off.
1: No, you can't. I mean, it did stretch the studio. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yes, I was an experienced writer at that time, um, and I knew what what the basis was. But you know, then had nine. I think it was eight or nine days to do it, and it was some quite difficult setups for them to do. Uh, but they did it, and you know, Ron Jones did a good job. You know, to get all that in for mm. for, for the time. Uh, yes, I mean, the the thing I envy most about the modern Doctor Who is is the production values they have. I mean, it must be wonderful to have that paint box to play with, mm. uh, which we didn't. And, of course, I was also fortunate because Sill, you know, we, to get back to Sill, be, because Nabil could have a, a costume that more or less fitted him, there were no clunky bits of cardboard sticking out or anything like that because... It, it was you know the the top half of him was him really and so it it gave it again that reality and, and that um, just the shape of it that i wasn't i wasn't forced into you know rather um, unconvincing
0: monsters in that in that in that sense things like that um cliffhanger to episode one the only cliffhanger is about as postmodern and meta and yeah. extraordinary as doctor and it's fantastic
1: yeah yeah it's the, the one with the desert yeah 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 yes where, where they say and cut and it yeah it. it, cut it. Yes, yes. the titles. i saw that
0: recently i did um, a doctor
1: who gig and um yeah i saw it at the end and it and it does work very well and, and it was the fine um i mean it is in the writing but at the same time the director's got to add his bit as well and which he did with the effects and um yeah, no, I, I have no complaints
0: in it. It's the fact that he waits for the picture to cut and the screens to go blank yeah, before yeah, going yeah. into the titles. Yeah. Somebody did write once that if Turner prizes were given for Doctor Who cliffhangers, that's the yeah, one that would get it, which is quite nice. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a, it's a nice one. And, and I like the very end of, um, of Varos, you know, where the, the two viewers, <gasps> the everyman viewers, look at each other after the television's been turned off and say, well, what do we do, what do we do, you know and again that that's a powerful moment again i saw that that, it, that quite recently and uh, it holds and it's good because often you know you write television and film and you often don't see them with an audience and it is a privilege when you do when you realize that you know you're looking at the audience and they're reacting the way you hope they would, mm. you know not always,
0: but but in these instances, yes, well, the beauty of that ending, of course, is what do we do now i don 't know, no, yeah. they don 't learn, they don 't cry, and they don 't go, oh aren't we you know we 're free, oh yeah, well I mean, there is the, a... there is the bewilderment of of being you know being free
1: really of suddenly being released from from the thrall of uh, propaganda, really, in which they they 've been they 've done that, and then you 've got to make your own way, yeah, there was a great debate about this at the doctor who um Gathering I was at, and I was really quite proud that there was a, a debate about freedom and choice and what you do and and um, you know what happens when you you are released from some like addiction or you know some circumstance that that uh, you now have choice and that, that, that was good that was good.
0: Well, and, of course, they had the illusion of choice because they got to vote Yeah, time, well, that that, but...
1: that was where it was so clever, where it was, where it was so clever, and and you can put it into our, you know, modern, we've just had an election for all the council, and, um, you know, you wonder, I mean, I voted, but you think, well, <laughs> you, know, you know, I knew the party I was voting for wasn't going to get in, but I think it's just do it as a matter of principle, but then you think, well, you know,
0: you've got to do it because
1: it's a very precious right that we have, and... Um, you know, we must follow it.
0: And yet more people vote on Britain's Got Talent. Oh,
1: I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, you could understand, I mean, I'm not, mm. I was anti-politicians as anybody, as, you know, as Varos shows to some degree, you know, how the process is baffling, really, that, that the scene where the governor tries to explain that the next governor will be just as impotent as he is and the same thing will happen. And I think that it often applies to some of our... Uh, situations, you know, it's like a football team that thinks if it changes the manager, the team will be all right. Yeah, and of course, <laughs> how many times have we seen that not work? But, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it's, you, you mentioned the, 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 that, that sort of those chorus figures of Stephen Yardley and Sheila Reid. Not, not bad actors to get for you. No, <laughs> pretty good, yeah. But I've noticed this because uh, going back to Gangsters. Um, in the play for today you 've got they're a slightly different form, of course, but you 've got the two stand up comedians yeah. um, as these very curious um, pictures of the actions, but commentators on the action and setting up the vibe without you then needing to be explicit about the the cultural yeah. clash and the cultural element and it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and there 's the element of race that is is running through that so where did where did that come from?
1: Well, gangsters came about in a strange way is that Barry Hansen, who was a producer at BBC Birmingham, knew me, not not in a very close way, but he sort of knew of me around. And he knew I'd done Zed Cars, and he knew I'd done crime series, and he knew I'd I'd done various things, as well as plays and, and what have you. And David Rose had been at a meeting that finished early in London, and he was waiting to go back to Birmingham, and there wasn't a train, there wasn't a regular service in those days. And he went to see a movie, and the movie was French Connection. And he went, French Connection 1, and then he got the train, and he went back into Birmingham, just as the sun was setting and lighting up the, the tower blocks that are on the skyline of Birmingham. And it just occurred to him, because he'd just seen New York on film, why there'd never been a crime film set in Birmingham. And he mentioned this to Barry Hansen, and Barry Hansen said... Well, you know, they had they had a little pot of money that was put by for a script editor that they hadn't used. And Barry said, well, I know somebody who sort of works in that field. You know, I wonder if he'd be interested if he'd come and live in Birmingham and see what the story is. And that was me. And I went up and, and they said, look, live here for three months, talk to everybody you can. Uh, you know, we'll pay you, we'll pay your expenses. And if there's a story here, great. And if there isn't, well, you've had a three-month holiday in Birmingham. So I said, OK. And I went there and spent a morning in the office and then decided that wasn't... No stories were going to come there. And I went out into the streets of Birmingham and opened myself up to talk to people, find out, investigate, follow, follow leads. And after six weeks, I was having to take the phone off the hook because I was getting so much input coming in. And when I'd done that three month series, three months um, stint, I knew what was going on in Birmingham in, in the crime scene. And then I put it down into a great long rambling um, script, and we had a, me- um, a meeting. And then during the course of it, uh, Tara Prem and Barry Hansen, somebody in the way said, you know, it'd be great to have a fictional element, or maybe I said, it'd be great to have a fictional element to bring all this reality together and that's when that that, uh, then went and wrote another script which was more or less the script that was filmed uh using the klein fictional element but underneath all that was everything that was going on in birmingham at that time when i was there so it was a very heavily researched subject um but with a fictional element that sort of went back to the Warner Brothers movies of the 1930s, etc., mm. plus all the, the the Indian film references as well, and plus Philip Saville's in oh, I'm talking about the original film, um, Philip Saville's input as well, as well as you know the rest of it. So it was um, that's basically how it, how the genesis
0: of it, how it came about. And it's cute it's, because you you say you you came with this um, reputation of being a, a gritty writer because and certainly the the original gangsters is, you know, and it's all the fact that it's all shot on film as well yeah. adds to that. And yet the series metamorphoses, and in in the end, the chorus becomes you, the writer, yeah. typing away and narrating Zia Moayyedin's story and things like that. And and you get to the point where at the end, an actress looks at the camera, and the camera pulls away. And, and prior to that, you've come in having played a very um, Straight down the line, earthy, um, brummy villain in, in the original. Mm. You come back as W.C. Fields and we suddenly yes. get quite postmodern. So yeah. you, you are a gritty writer and yet you've got this subversive surrealist streak.
1: Well, yes, I mean, in a way, yes, I, yes, I am. I mean, I, I've got two hats really. And this is why I liked writing for Doctor Who because it gave that fantastical element, um, you know, free reign. Which is what you can't in in, in, in um, straightforward naturalistic things, and it was a journey that 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 came about from the realism of the the film running through the first series, and then I began to think, what are we doing here? You know, why are we pretending that this is this is all there is? That I, I'm creating a, a reality that is reality when it isn't reality. In fact, it's you sitting in a television, in a in a room watching a television, and that started to go, and it became. Partly as well through the influence of Alistair Reed, the late Alistair Reed, who directed four episodes of the second series. And we sparked each other's imaginations a great deal. And the fact that I ended up... You, we, we were using what was around. I mean, how I came to be writing a tele, on a typewriter in Pakistan was that I needed to write some sequences, um, chase sequences. And, I mean, this is you no, know, this is typewriter time... And I was looking for a typewriter. I couldn't find a typewriter anywhere. And I was walking along the street with Alistair, and there's this guy sitting back typing, and he used to type all the letters for everybody in the street. You say you needed a letter writing to the government, you go to him and give him a you know a few few um, you know bits of money and, and he he would he would type your letter for you. And I said if I don't find a typewriter soon, I'm going to have to go to that guy, you know. And Alistair laughed and said, well, why don't you? And that started it up. And, and so when I came to, to write the ending, I I th- I thought it would be very funny if I'm actually dictating to this guy, who was a real real man on, on the thing. And I well, I went and I did the E-N-D, the final thing, and then Alistair stepped in from behind the camera and said, to throw the paper up in the air. And I said, OK. We threw the paper up in the air and then we froze it and then... You know we said whatever whatever that particular ending was, and uh, so there was that going on, and we were very very um fertile creative, and we were using everything that was around and that came in that amused us uh, we tended to put in the script or tended to it tended to go on the screen and, uh, and I came really to play that the heavy the, in in the original film by accident, there was a strike, and i um, I'd finished the final rewrite of it and I'd solved all the problems at the end and I was so chuffed that I had to read it out because everybody was going off on holiday or something. And I remember reading it out just so everybody knew what the new ending was going to be. And I was so chuffed at having finally finished it that i played all the parts and did all the Brummie accent and everything and uh, and left it at that and came home, back to Lancaster. And then I got a call from... No, back to London then. I was living in London. I got a call from Philip Savile saying I'd like you to play the part and I hadn't acted for about ten years and I thought, Oh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. I said, let me think about it. And he said, Well, it's like riding a bike, you never forget. And I said, Well, okay, well, I don't know. And then I thought about it and said, I'll give it a try. But I said, Look, if if we do the read through and if we if you find that it's it's not really working, just, just say and I'll understand. So we went up to Birmingham, all the cast of gangsters, and I was, I mean, actors often in read-throughs just mumble, as you know, just mumble and sort of say this, that and the other, but I wanted to prove to myself that I could actually do it. So I came in swinging. And everybody else thought, oh, Christ, he's acting. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so everybody started to act. And we had this amazing read-through. And some of, some of the Barry Hanson said, God, I've never known a read-through like that in my life. And it just sparked the whole thing. And, and it was such a big push-off that we with that. But it came about that I really wanted to see if I could do it. To go to the other end of the spectrum, the W.C. Fields character, uh, Les Dawson was going to play it and it agreed to do it. And then the BBC moved two of his shows together so he couldn't do it. And I'd been going around because I'd been listening to all the W.C. Fields tapes and uh, had become a fan of his. And I knew all the routines and I'd been going around cracking jokes, you know, saying, ah, wonderful, wonderful, and all that stuff going on. And again, Alistair had heard me. And I got a call from him saying, you've got to do it. And I said, what have I got, what have I got to do, Alistair? What have I got to do? He said, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And I said, what have I got to do? He said, play WC Fields, or WD Fields, as he was known. And I said... <laughs> so anyway, so then, so I end up with a funny nose and a you know, top hat and all the rest of it. You
0: know, yeah, <laughs> and realism comes crumbling. Oh, oh, yeah, it yeah. It's extraordinary. I mean, yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it really sort of came, it became a... A great trip, really. And, um, yeah, and, you know, good old BBC let me do it. I mean, they did, didn't have much choice because it, it was already scheduled and
0: it was being written almost as it was being filmed, really. But as you say, you hadn't acted for ten years, so let's go right back because that's how you started. So what was your background and what got you into, um, you know, pursuing a career in television, first in, in front of the cameras and then, then behind?
1: Yeah, well... I was. I worked in a factory in Liverpool. I was serving an apprenticeship as a toolmaker, and suddenly, at about the age of seventeen, I saw some movies. I saw East of Eden, Never Without a Cause, and I realised there was a there was a style of acting which was actually method at the, at the time that really appealed to me, and it was. And so I I began. I joined amateur dramatic societies. I was in three. At, one time and i was living on two hours sleep a night i was doing this job acting in all sorts of plays at night and then towards the end of my apprenticeship i applied to go to rada and this is just at the time when the new wave was coming in of albert finney tom courtney saturday night sunday morning you know I'm, my sort of guy was coming into into style really and um, so i went to rada and did an audition and was accepted And received a grant from Liverpool Council and went to London and I was spent a year at RADA. At the end of that year I was given a chance by the husband of a a woman Ellen Dryden who was in my class and she'd mentioned me to him and said, because she knew he was doing this play by David Turner which was set in Birmingham curiously, and he said, will you come in and read." And I went in and read, and I read. I read the lead part, and he said later on. I mean, he then, you know, I read it as well as I could, and then I went away and didn't hear anything for two weeks. And then they asked me to come in and read it again, and I read it again. I mean, remember, I had absolutely no professional experience whatsoever, and this was a lead on a play of, you know, it's the equivalent of the the main play of the week on BBC One, which was done live. And I went in and read it again, and I can see Don Taylor now looking out the window for about five minutes, it seemed, without saying anything. Then he turned around and said, "Okay, you can have it. And I said, oh, thanks, you know, like that. He told me later on that his idea was he would give me a small two or three lines for um, experience in in a television show, but he'd realised after he'd... He'd heard a lot of people read the part and nobody had actually read it better than I had. And so it turns up that I'm playing the lead in a live 90-minute play on television, you know, and doing this, which I got marvellous reviews for. And whereas at RADA, I'd been more or less unknown as rather sort of quirky guy from the north. When it got this exposure, because it all happened within within the break between terms, the big summer break between terms, and when I went back... I was a sort of marked man. I was doing everything that I'd, I'd done before. and everybody, everybody said, oh, he's doing that because, you know, he's big-headed and he's got all this business. And it became... And I had an agent by this time and everything. So I thought, well, it, it's pointless, me taking somebody else's spot, you know, for the end-of-term showcase things. And so I left and then worked as a as, a, as an actor for... I was in Loneliness as a Long-Distance Runner and um, I played a lot of television. But eventually... I sort of grew out of it in a way. I became looking at, you know, I became sort of wanting to rewrite the other parts. And, you know, I I, I sort of went into writing, although I I enjoy acting and I can, but I I don't follow the actor's life. You know, I write rather than than act. And so I gradually went into becoming a
0: writer, really. Well, talking about. you know not writing politically don taylor was somebody who wore his his politics on his well, sleeve. Absolutely.
1: absolutely yeah i mean he was he was a, a left-wing socialist and made no no bones about it and a lot of his work was reflected that and i was in another play called where the difference begins which was about unionism of his and um but you know i'll always be grateful that he took a deep breath and gave me a chance, really.
0: Well, as you say, it was at a time when um, suddenly having a regional background was was not a disadvantage, and Joan Littlewood started using actors like George Shule and William Marlowe, who looked like they'd live real lives. Yeah, and the Beatles
1: had arrived, you see. There was Liverpool, which was my hometown, and I I used to go for auditions and people would say, ''Where are you from?'' and I'd say, ''Liverpool.'' I say, oh, are you really from Liverpool? Because everybody was everybody <laughs> was saying, you know, because of the Beatles. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm there. You know, that's me. Like you know, and um, yeah, <laughs> it was a funny time, really.
0: But as a, as the a cultural element of Liverpool, and certainly there's a, there's a there's a big cultural. Uh, Identity to Liverpudlian set up for my world stand up comedy, you know, and and when you're a comedian who plays Liverpool, you you have to be very careful how you um, throw it in because you talk about what's happening around the corner and they love it. You talk about so there's a there's a parochial element to it as well. How important is your Liverpudlian identity to you then as a as an artist?
1: Uh, well, I don't think that I'm part of the Liverpool scene
0: because I've I lived there until I was about twenty
1: one. And um, my family used to feud like mad and I just got fed up by When I came north, I was actually a resident dramatist at Liverpool Playhouse for a season and wrote a play for them. But I didn't want to actually live in Liverpool. I mean, I I like Liverpool. I like Liverpool people and I like that sparkiness. But certainly that that competitiveness and that edge, you know, I think I, I have, you know, beyond anybody who comes from there, has this. This um, it's rather Shakespearean this wordplay that they do, you know, that ev- that everybody does, and, and you know, I have it, and and most Liverpoolians I know also have it, and this feeling of, you know, it's like they say, "Oh, it's a chip on your shoulder," but, you know, it's a it's a city that's had tough times, and and it reflects in the people, and uh, when I went when I went to, to Rada for instance, I mean, I was in overalls on the Friday, and I was in tights on the Monday, mm-hmm. you know. And whereas anybody, anything that I would take as an insult, I'd be sort of at, and people would make some cutting remark, which in Liverpool would be a stand up and fight and <laughs> to the death about, there it's just part of the thing. And it took me a little while to, to realize that, and it gradually I went down. So. But I think, you know, I don't think of myself as a Liverpool writer, I just think of myself as a writer. <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, that ended quite abruptly, didn't it? That's because there will be a part two, because he's had a great career and had lots of really interesting stuff to say. It'll be in five or six podcasts time, because I like to mix it up a little bit. Um, The next one is with an actor who's brilliant uh, in Doctor Who, but also has a theatrical and a screenwriting claim to fame or two. It's a very interesting man by Skype. Um, And Phillips charity is Water Aid. which is www.wateraid.org slash uk www.wateraid.org forward slash uk until the next who's round well here's a preview of it it's the kind
1: of world we lived in casting ladies catching the bus uh she saw a boy and his mother and she jumped off the Soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Antidote to Oblivion. My request is on behalf of Concorpia. You are supporting not just a corporation, but a country, a nation. No, Mr. President,
0: no. You have exceeded your critical limits. We plan further austerity measures. Only radical cutting will do. How radical? A scheme to drastically reduce your parasitical population. <sighs> What a sublime pleasure to meet with you once more. The feeling is not reciprocated, Syl. There's things in here with us. Doctor!
1: Whatever Syl has planned for us, it can only be worse than death.
0: I intend to break you down. piece by genetic piece. Doctor, I... <sighs> Flip! Flip! A little trauma! The odd burst of agony? Is that too much to ask? Even by your standards, Syl, so this is despicable. Oh. Is there an epidemic? Not yet. We must have the vaccine tomorrow at the very latest. Antidote to what? For what? Difficult times call for difficult solutions. Oh, well, now the readings are fading. They're going to die, both of them. don't let the viral bombardment begin! No! No!
1: Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.